We are beginning today a new series uh, just titled Suffering and Sorrow. And that's a somewhat broad topic, but a topic that is uh, certainly an important topic in the Bible. And it is certainly one that every one of us knows something about. Uh, I want to note that this particular lesson this morning, which will be on pain and suffering, uh, was developed in large measure from Herbert Carson's book called Facing Suffering. Um, but before we get to that particular part, I want to begin here by reading from John 11, chapter, uh, John 11, uh, verses 33 through 36. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? Referring to Lazarus. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. And yet it says so much. Jesus, we are told in the creeds, as we recite every Sunday, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're told that Jesus is our high priest and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Suffering is something he was well acquainted with. Certainly at the cross, not only physical suffering, but emotional anguish, emotional pain, if you will, as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we come to the Bible, we come to the Word of God, and uh, it doesn't stand simply above us, but Jesus lived among us, and he did feel our pain, and he did suffer. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians says that he himself was filling up that which was lacking in the suffering of Christ, which is kind of an odd phrase, but it, it's the idea that because we are united to Christ, that we too suffer. And the difference is, in Christ, our suffering has meaning. Outside of Christ, it has no meaning. Suffering and sorrow are common to humanity. But the question is always, what, if anything, does it mean? And then the next question, how do we face it? What are we to do? How are we to look at it? How are we to respond? When we feel pain, of course, it gets all of our attention. This is true of physical pain. If, uh, if you drop a rock on your toe, at that moment all you're thinking about is the pain that you feel there. The fact that the rest of your body feels, feels well doesn't mean that you know, you're not going to be thinking about that. It's not going to make your toe feel a bit better. And the same is true with emotional pain. When we feel it, it has all of our attention. And so it is essential that we come to view, come to see our pain and our suffering from a biblical perspective, to get some sense of what God is up to. Pain and sorrow is one of the ways that God speaks to us and one of the ways that he works in us. I know personally that much of the pain and the suffering that I've experienced in my life as I often say, I would never want to go through that again, but I also can almost always say 
I gained from it. I learned from it. I, I came away with a new perspective on things. I came away with a new sympathy for others. I came away with a new recognition of God's grace and mercy even in the midst of those things and, and much, much more. And so, Paul Miller, I uh, remember we did the Praying Life Seminar with uh, Bob Allens and, and his book, A Praying Life, said this, When confronted with suffering that won't go away or even with a minor problem, we instinctively focus on what is missing, not on the Master's hand. Often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. If you watch the stories God is weaving in your life, you will begin to see the patterns. You'll become a poet, sensitive to your father's voice. If these are just things that happen, bad things that happen and, and have no meaning and no reason and are not part of anything bigger, then of course we end in nothing but despair. But if they are part of a bigger story, part of something else, that uh, is taking us somewhere and somewhere important, then, of course, we're going to have a very different view. A.W. Pink noted that afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, but perhaps their real likeness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. Paul described his sufferings, and they were considerable as these light afflictions when compared to the weight of glory. So he's weighing his suffering with what is coming. And so by comparison, all my sufferings are really light. And so this ties in with our previous study on the new heavens and the new earth and our glorification and what is being done for us in Christ, and setting those in that context. In this series of lessons, we'll not only examine the subjects of pain and suffering in a general way, but more specifically, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about sorrow and grief. And so let's begin today with the subject of pain and suffering. Pain and suffering are inevitable in a fallen world. They're the common condition of all people, everywhere, in every time, in every place. There are no exceptions. To be human is to face suffering and pain. In fact, I find it a helpful exercise on engaging with other people, sometimes total strangers who are frustrating me or not doing things the way I'd like them to be done or fast enough or whatever. To remember, these are suffering human beings. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what's happening in their lives. There may be physical pain, emotional pain. Maybe they were up all night. I don't know. And so I need to, like Jesus does, look with sympathy and compassion upon others who are likewise feeling pain and suffering. Now we know that some aspects of pain are good. For example, the ability to feel physical pain warns us away from things that would harm us or even kill us. Uh, pleasure is the carrot, and pain, if you will, is sometimes the stick. Don't do that. It will hurt. So stop it. It's God's way of getting us to quit doing things that are not good for us. And so our suffering 
of course, is due in the first place to our mortality. We are all born in this fallen world to die. From the moment we draw our first breath of life, it is a losing battle against the aging process, which sooner or later will take our lives, our physical lives, and it will end in death. Modern medicine has made enormous strides in prolonging life so that life expectancy, particularly in the West, is much higher than even a generation ago. But medical care is at best a state of execution. Inevitably, we all die. I want you to look at the greatest athletes, the most fit. It's going to happen to them also. For what is your life? James 4.14 It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Moreover, death is not simply, it's not a simple, usually not a simple transition from one sphere to another. It is most often closely linked with pain. Often its arrival is preceded by diseases of various degrees of painfulness and sometimes by accidents or by violence. And the pain is felt by those who are left behind to face the crushing shock of bereavement. Death inevitably means for most of us pain and tears and the sorrow of shattered lives. And yet it's common to all of us. Now, it's, it's, uh, the catalog of human suffering, of course, is a long one. Uh, it, in, all there, in all this, though there's a major factor, I think, which makes suffering even more intense than, say, animal suffering, and that is <clears throat> that we are able to anticipate pain. We discover that we have some incurable disease, uh, but we also know others who have suffered intensely from the same kind of illness, and therefore we can easily deduce what our prospects are. This anticipation of pain and the mental anguish that comes with it, which uh, accompany actual physical pain, uh, are both accentuated by the desire for life and the avoidance of death. And so a person wants to live, our instinct is for self-preservation. It's strongly developed, and yet we know that ultimately we're going to die. But there are further acute problems which arise when we begin to reflect on suffering. For one thing, the degree of suffering seems to bear no relationship to the quality of the life of the person who suffered. And what I mean by that is a ruthless criminal may evade the law and enjoy a healthy and enjoy a healthy and luxurious surroundings, while a nurse is injured in a car accident and spends the rest of her days paralyzed. To the onlooker, it seems like a cruel and heartless world where justice has no bearing on what really happens. And then again, there is the great inequity in the quota of suffering borne by different individuals, the amount of suffering. One person lives a long and healthy life with a happy family and a successful career, and another one faces debilitating illness 
the loss of a child, or the collapse of their career. Why? These are the big questions. All the big questions science cannot answer. They're going to have to be answered in some other way, or not answered at all. Such, we say, is life, but we can't shrug off the insistent questions which press in upon us. Why the inequity of suffering? Why does this family bear the brunt while others are comparatively unscathed? Why does one country enjoy reasonable standards of life and security while another is devastated by floods? If others ask why in the face of pain, then the Christian's why often goes even deeper. We believe in a God who is all good and who is almighty. You see, our faith uh, presents us with hard questions, though paradoxically it is the same faith which furnishes us with the answers. And so, believing that God is all good and he's almighty, but then we have this problem, if God's almighty, the argument runs, why does he permit uh, men to hurt and destroy one another? If he is all good, then surely... He will use his almighty power to avert the pain and suffering, which are the blight of humanity. Wouldn't you? Isn't that what you would do? An atheist in a godless world really has no questions to ask. But then he has no answers either. If that, if that world of pain and suffering had no meaning... Uh, Excuse me, in that world, pain and suffering have no meaning whatsoever. If there's no God, this is just molecules in motion, so what? Pain and suffering have no ultimate moral content. They are mere evolutionary tools of survival. Survival of the fittest. The weak die, the weak suffer, the strong get through it, and are made stronger. And progress, whatever progress is in the evolutionary world. So I ask, why do you want to survive? The human heart cries out for an answer which reaches down to those who suffer and sorrow with a word which brings some hope in a world of despair. The old Stoic philosophy of Grin and Barrett. Um, may, uh, you know, yield some ability to just get through it somehow. This idea of uh, a grim, unyielding despair in the face of buffeting, the buffeting of faith may sound like a noble ideal, but in fact it is a bleak, cold message that doesn't mean anything. It may sustain some, but it only sustains them in a numbed hopelessness. If there is not God, if there is no God, then we are only left with the cosmic, so what? Everything you've suffered, every pain you've felt, doesn't mean anything at all. Period. So these are the options we're facing. As a believer... This is really important here, I think, in setting the table here, laying the foundation for looking at this. As a believer, of course, we don't know everything. We can't know everything. 
And so we have to start with what we do know. And so I ask you, what do we know? We know what God has told us. God is all good. God is all powerful. Pain and suffering do exist. Therefore, this is really important again, if God, do we know that God's all good? Yes. Do we know that He's all powerful? Yes. Do we know evil exists? Yes. Therefore, God must, of necessity, have a moral, uh, morally justifiable reason for the pain and the suffering that exists. Yeah, but what is it? I don't always know. Sometimes I do know. But sometimes I don't. But he must have one because he's all good and because he's all powerful and it does exist. But he's not under obligation to tell me. Now that solves the logical problem, but it doesn't solve the psychological problem. We have to admit that we don't have the final and complete answer. The answers we have bring great, great comfort, but there are still areas of mystery. There are still unyielding psychological problems to which our only response is, I don't understand, but I thank God and I trust my Heavenly Father. Like children have to do with their parents who don't always understand why something is happening or why a particular decision has been made, why they can't have something they desire. How true Paul's words are from 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part. But we do know in part. And it's the part that we know that we have to hang on to, that we have to take in. And sometimes we don't want to. I don't want that. I want a full explanation, God. I want it right now. And that's what would comfort me, but I don't think so. Because I think because we're children and finite, we still wouldn't comprehend and understand what's going on completely. And so God has told us what we do need to know. If we'll accept that and trust him, then we can move forward. And so what are some of the reasons for pain and suffering? We're going to begin our attempt to answer the problem of pain and suffering by looking at some of the areas of pain and suffering where the issue is reasonably clear. Now these are broad categories that help us sort out some of this. And so there are different kinds of pain and different kinds of suffering and different degrees of pain and suffering. So I just want to mention some of those as we begin to look at this. First, of course, there is the self-inflicted kind Pain and suffering where an individual bears direct responsibility and in no way can blame anybody else. In these cases, we can connect the dots. If a person, for example, is promiscuous and ends up with a diseased body or with insanity, they themselves are responsible. There's a direct connection between the sin and the result. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sins will find you out. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked whatever a man sows that he will also reap. But second, there are the related areas of pain where at first sight the issues are not so plain. It's one thing to say 
it's a person's own fault if he wrecks his own body. But about the, uh, but what about the suffering which comes to others as a result of that selfishness? The syphilitic might reap a grim harvest from his pleasures, but he might also inflict blindness on a child that he brings into the world. The alcoholic might destroy himself, but at the wheel of a car, he might also kill or maim others. Third, the quote innocent in one situation becomes himself the selfish exploiter in another. So while my pain or suffering might not be a direct result of a cause and effect, nevertheless I am a sinner in a fallen world full of sinners, and there is a correlation between that general truth and my personal pain and suffering. In Adam's fall, we sin all. So I may not be guilty of a sin that produced that result, but I am certainly guilty of sin. And often the pain and suffering I feel is a result of other people's sins, and, and there's just this intermingling, so I can never say, well, I'm, I'm utterly innocent here. Fourth, the so-called natural disaster is clearly independent of human agency. The tornado, the volcano, the earthquake, the hurricane, the tsunami. These are not precipitated by man's activity, but they do cause immense suffering. Paul draws this connection, I think, very strongly in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so the world itself is broken and not working the way it was intended, the way it originally was. So sin has not just impacted me and you, but the physical environment that we live in. And, of course, fifth, there are tragic accidents which are not connected to human willfulness. It may be because of mechanical failure in a car. It may be due to human frailty and the miscalculation of a driver or a pilot. But in these and innumerable similar cases, people are surely not responsible or culpable for the thing that happened. He slipped and fell. It was an accident. Six, birth and death. At the time of birth and sometimes at the time of death, pain and suffering come without any known cause. So in one case, Jesus does give an explanation. In John 9, 1 through 3, now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. But in most cases, we are simply left without a direct explanation. I say direct explanation because we are not left with no explanation. That's important, but we know it in part. 
There's some things we do know. So many things that God has revealed about himself, about us, about the world, and about history, and about our future, and so forth, have a bearing on our understanding of that, but it doesn't explain everything. And so behind it all, we should see a couple of things. The general background to suffering and pain is the fall itself. The entrance of sin into the world. Disobeying God. God put man in paradise where there was no pain and suffering. And sin is what changed everything. So what is the cause of suffering? What is the cause of pain? Sin. That is the cause. And so our first approach to these great problems is to note this basic fact of the human situation, namely the reality of the spiritual catastrophe described in Genesis 3 and to which we refer to it as the fall. Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and, and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. That was part of the curse, the result of sin. Continuing with that in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so the introduction of sin into this world is the underlying cause of our suffering and our pain. Second, behind that, is Satan himself. This great act of disobedience by our first parents is set in that wider context of the rebellion of Satan and his angels against the supreme authority of God. Indeed, the disobedience of Adam and Eve may be viewed as their capitulation to the enemy, involving them not only in his rebellion, but also the terrible consequences. Thus, the fall is an event of human history, but it's also a part of the moral catastrophe that has cosmic proportions. It is not, therefore, surprising to discover the unending ramifications of that disaster. There is, of course, the primary consequence, namely man's alienation from God, but from this condition, so many sad consequences flow. To be in communion with God is to know the Creator and to know, as a result, His gracious purposes for creation. So in Genesis 2, Adam shares with his Creator in the naming of the animals and also the appreciation of an environment which was not hostile, but friendly. Indeed, God's own words were, it is very good. But alienation from God, uh, but through alienation from God, man's mind is darkened. He now knows neither God nor God's law for himself for he, uh, and for the created order. And before, he had been told to replenish the earth and subdue it. But the subjection of nature for man's use, of course, requires a divinely given wisdom left to the impoverished thinking of his fallen condition, man can no longer, for example, control his greed, and so he exploits rather than subjects nature, and thus destroys both the earth around him 
and also his fellow creatures. But man's rebellion also opened the door to the dominion of the Satan. The fallen spirit who rebelled against the Lord, we're told, became the prince of this world. The world created by God was invaded then by an alien force. And so John could say in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the evil one. Thus God in his word of judgment in Eden speaks of the enmity of Satan and the woman as an enmity seen supremely in his hostility to Christ, who was born of a woman, but also to all the sons and daughters of Eve. And so this enmity lies behind so much of the misery, so much of the suffering, which to us seems to be inexplicable. That Satan is active in this malevolent work is seen in the book of Job. And we'll look a little bit more at the book of Job in the next week or two. Though it is reassuring to see that in this case, Satan's dominion is still within the limits imposed by God. So the Lord in his wisdom and for reasons he has not disclosed to us has allowed Satan to a measure of dominion that he is always subject to the ultimate sovereignty of God. Yet even within these circumscribed limits, Satan can still wreak a lot of havoc. And so he is seen behind the loss of Job's family and property and behind the sickness and pain in Job's own body. And in the same way, Jesus speaks of the woman who was in suffering from a great disease, and she, he said, Satan had bound for 18 years. And Paul speaks of the exclusion of the offender from church fellowship as delivering him to Satan, that means he is subject to the activity of the devil who will destroy him physically, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, though mercifully he cannot touch him spiritually. Once again, we see the evil power which Satan wields. Paul himself knew of this reality and spoke of his thorn in the flesh, whatever that affliction may have been, as what? A messenger of Satan to harass me. However you interpret Revelation 20, one thing is quite clear, the loosing of Satan leads to the deceiving of the nations and to war. So behind the lust and greed and cruelty of men which lead to the unending catalog of suffering and misery, there lies a darker shadow. There is a figure who lurks in the background who deceives men into carrying out his purposes and whose supreme ambition is to cause misery and unhappiness. But the word of solemn judgment in Eden is not only spoken of the impairment of man and the dominion of Satan, it is also declared a curse on the ground. Curse of the ground because of Eden. So even the created order has been deeply affected by the consequences of Satan's rebellion and Adam's sin. The world as we know it, of course, then, is not a harmonious structure which, uh, which came fresh from the hand of God. It's not that anymore. And over which the refrain was repeated, it is good 
Instead, it is a place of discord that has affected the fabric of creation, the functioning of nature, the pattern of, for both animals and human beings. And so we have savage and destructive elements in nature which manifest themselves in earthquakes and floods and those kinds of things. We have nature that is red and tooth and claw, and we have things like malarial diseases and disease-carrying germs. We have, in short, a creation in a state of deep discord, and the consequences of that discord reverberate in every corner of life. Now, I know I'm painting a dark picture here because it is dark. That's the truth. In fact, it's much darker than I've even begun to describe, and you know that. We could uh, tell stories and uh, actual things that have happened in this world ever since. That's the history of man, and they would be horrifying. Horrifying. That ought to tell us something about the nature of sin. But there is hope, of course, in the sovereignty of God. If this were the end of the story, it would be a description for unmitigated despair, but it is far from the final condition of things. The time of travail will end. There will be, in Peter's words, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's the New Testament echo of the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 11, 6-9, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion with the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was the original plan. Fill the earth. And that's what it's going to be like until sin comes into the picture. And so this still leaves, admittedly, a number of great questions unanswered. And to say that the present discord in creation is the judgment of God still means that the pain and the suffering which flow from that discord flow ultimately from the eternal judge. But then we must acknowledge that with our limited, finite minds, and with minds so darkened by sin that we cannot indeed dare not, therefore question the justice of the Almighty. And so Abraham's question still stands as a true affirmation of faith. Shall not the judge of the earth be right? And we started that, what do we know? God is just. God is good. God is powerful. Shall not the judge of the earth be right? The story is not over yet. We're in the middle of the story. If this is God's sentence, we must bow before his sovereign wisdom, and we will learn in such submission to grasp in some small measure the infinite horror of sin which has wrought such havoc, and the infinite glory of his delivering us from it. We will learn also then the wonder of God's answer to that sin, which is 
the redemption of Christ that will not only embrace all of the elect of God, but ultimately the universe. And so we are out of time. We're going to stop there. There are many more positive things coming, but we need to have that backdrop just to recognize all of that. I know you know, but we need to, I want to bring this into focus as we begin to look at the mess that we're in and the pain and the suffering that we've all felt and we've all observed to ask ourselves the question, how, how are we to deal with this? How are we to look at this? How are we to face it in our own lives and be able to help others to do likewise? And there are many answers here. Father, we thank you for your word that does direct us and instruct us. Bless us in the weeks ahead as we consider these things that we might learn to thank your thoughts after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.